The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Hard to Believe, Answering Common Objections to Christianity. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 23, verses 1 through 33. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And you call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and Paul uncleanless. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? This is the word of the Lord. I am Alex Arguello. 
not yet one of the pastors here, but I am in training to become one of the pastors here. So God willing, I will be able to serve you all in that way very soon. Um, But if I'm not a pastor, then why am I up here this morning? Well, Sacred City um, highly values the raising up of men to be preachers and teachers of, of God's word. And you actually heard from another man who's not a pastor last week, Rob Spikestra, who is, um, like me, also in this preaching lab that we do here at Sacred City. And Rob, along with his wife, Tamara, are members here at Sacred City. They're also part of the North Park Missional Community, which is the same missional community that my wife, Emily, and I are co-leaders of. And there's been a a lot of talk up here, starting with Jeff Miller a couple weeks ago, and then (laughs) Rob last week about, you know, what's the best MC that Sacred City has of just all the wonderful MCs that are out there. And of course, I want to continue that discussion a little bit. You know, it's very clear that uh, all those MCs are phenomenal. So if you haven't checked one out, I would highly recommend that you not only check one out, but you do become a part of one. But when we're actually talking about which one is the best, it's obviously North Park MC. And this is based off of one just very specific but important piece of criteria. How many people are you getting on stage? <laughs> right? I think that's the gold standard. Right? Those are the super Christians. Right? Those are the ones that have it all figured out and live these sin-free lives. And if you look at last week, we had Rob, and I'm up here this week, and Rob's up, or Brev, Ben, is up here every week doing the announcements. And we have David in the back playing the drums. Natalie occasionally sings, and even Corey, who does the sound, comes up here and saves the day when the batteries run on the mic. Right? So we dominate up here. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying. <laughs> Bettendorf MC, Oak Lane MC, Northwest MC, where yet? <laughs> Obviously, I'm kidding, as you guys have already figured out. But being up here and even filling this pulpit doesn't mean that we are um, a bigger part of this church than, than anybody else that is part of this church. It's just one of the ways that um, allows this body to function well, but it is an honor to serve you in this way, and I am proud of our missional community that so many of us are able to serve here on Sundays this way. And I do hope to do well for you this morning, um, which is just another way of saying I hope the sermon doesn't stink. Uh, it might, though, right? Justin always says the first hundred or so that you do is going to stink in some way, shape, or form. And even though I've been in this preaching lab where we're learning how to craft sermons and deliver sermons, I've been in that for the past two years. They really only allow me to do this about every six months. So this is only my third attempt at doing this, which I'm totally fine with. Because if you know me, I am a husband, obviously, to my wife, Emily, that I've already talked about, Um, a father of five children, who I don't even want to attempt to try to name all of them. And I also run a small business. Um, So there is a lot of things going on in my life, and I know I've said this up here before, but preparing for this and um, getting ready for today takes a lot of time and and a lot of energy. And every time I get the privilege of doing this, I'm just blown away at how Pastor Justin and and even Pastor Sam over in Moline, how they do this with just a few days of preparation, and they do this week after week, over 40 times a year that they actually do this. So I'm very thankful for those men, um, and again, just for the other men that that help to fill the pulpit um, when they are on vacation or whatever else when they need a break. Um, But I just ask that you guys would continue praying for those guys. I would encourage you to pray for those guys as they continue to serve us in this way for hopefully a very long time that they'll be doing that. I think they actually wanted me to get to a sermon today, so we're going to go ahead and do that now. We find ourselves today in the fifth week of a series called Hard to Believe, where we're wrestling with these common objections that people might have to the Christian faith. And For those of you that have been with us for the previous weeks, I hope 
that this sermon series has been as helpful for you as it has been for me. It's primarily been helpful for me in allowing me to just think and process through these difficult questions about our faith. Questions that for a long time, I would just forget, I would just ignore. I would justify not thinking about these questions by saying, they aren't the main thing, so why not just keep the main thing the main thing? And although pieces of that justification are true, by thinking this way, what I was doing was I was forgetting about the people who might see these objections as the very thing that's keeping them from believing the main thing. You may have come to a similar realization. So I think if nothing else, this series could be a powerful reminder that there are people in our city, in our workplace, in our family, in our neighborhood, who reject Christianity. And we might be the very person that God wants to use to engage them with the gospel. Now, of course, if this is going to be true, that would mean that we would actually have to have relationships with people in our city, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, who reject Christianity. So if we don't have these type of relationships or we're not having these type of conversations, we really should be asking ourselves, is this what God wants for me? And I'm saying that to you as I have been saying that to myself as I've been preparing for this sermon because I don't have many relationships like this. Most of the people that I have personal relationships accept the Christian faith or at least some form of the Christian faith. So I have to be always asking myself these questions. And when I looked at a recent personality profile that I did, my most comfortable personality type is the peaceful person which means I see conflict as similar to death. I try to avoid conflict at all cost. So even in the relationships that I do have with people who reject the faith, I'm not too gung-ho about engaging them with a conversation on their beliefs about God. This is something that you can be praying for me on. But very often I have to ask myself these questions. What is glorifying to God? What in my relationships, about my relationships, am I living in a way that God has called me to live? And I think these are great questions for all of us to ask. And I believe this series can be a good reminder of that. So as we dive into the questions this morning, maybe as you re-listen to the previous sermons in this series, my prayer for the believers in this room is that, yes, you would be equipped to have these conversations with people who would reject the faith, but maybe more importantly, that we would just be having these conversations at all. If you are not a Christian and are here because, or are listening because you are a skeptic, first again, we welcome you. And my prayer for you is that I could do my best with God's help in addressing the difficulty in these questions today, but that you would be able to hear our position clearly without your own framework that might be blinding you to any truth that might be shared today. And of course, that your rejection of Christianity would be lifted. But if nothing else, that you could at least see the beauty of the one that we as Christians call our king, which is what we've already tried to present today in the liturgy and the songs. The questions or objections that we will be dealing with today are about injustice. Very, very important subject, and it's a subject that the Bible speaks a lot about, some of which we will get into today. But here's the specific question. Why has the Christian church been responsible for so much injustice? So that's kind of addressing the the corporate part of it, the corporate body of Christ that we call the church. But along with that, why have Christians as individuals been such hypocrites? 
right? How can a Christian claim to believe what the Bible says and then use what the Bible says to condemn other people's actions, but then still be a part of corporate injustice, as well as on an individual relationship level, be so hypocritical, judging people, being hurtful to others? I'm going to attempt to address these questions together as opposed to just taking them one at a time. But before I do go there, let's pray. Ask the Spirit to help us. Holy Spirit, I, we need your help. I need your help to be able to communicate um, in a way that would be understandable for these people. But I also pray that I would communicate in a way that would be effective for these people. And I know that I can't do that on my own, so I need you to anoint my communication, but also we need you to anoint the ears of the listeners this morning. They can't even hear your message. They can't even hear your word if you don't allow that to happen. So, Spirit, we pray that you would do that. We pray that you would use the the words that are spoken today to, to actually change hearts, that you would build up the people, that you would build up this church. And again, it would be all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think the best place to start with first talking about this is whether or not these objections are, are even legitimate, right? Are they valid questions? Have Christians, the Christian church, actually been part of injustice throughout history? Or are Christians actually hypocrites? I think one of the things that we have to understand when going through an answer to this objection is that the Christian church has a history of being very powerful. There are long stretches of history where what is referred to as Christendom was established in the Western world. From 380 AD, when Christianity was made the legal established religion in the Roman Empire, all the way through the 19th century, even here to the United States, when we started to enter what's called a post-Christendom culture, the church had much influence and biblical values were foundational for much of life for everybody. That was 1,500 years, over 1,500 years that that happened. So because of this power and this influence that the church had, It was a very easy target for criticism and would receive a lot of attention if something happened that appeared scandalous in any way. So I think this has potentially embellished some of the church's involvement in justice throughout history, but the fact, that fact, does not excuse the church's involvement in justice throughout history at all. There's plenty to choose from when discussing the darkness that has happened in the history of the church. There were the Crusades which were the wars the Christians were involved in for a few centuries against Muslims, where many people suffered, many people were oppressed, and even died. Then there was the Inquisition, where people were persecuted and also murdered for having different beliefs than the church at that time. Christian nations were oppressive in institutionalizing the African slave trade, ruining the lives of many individuals and destroying families and an entire ethnic group, which continues to be affected by this day, even to now in our culture. And of course, we've heard of clergy members, pastors that are involved in sex scandals, money embezzlement, and many other ungodly behaviors. It seems that the question of why has the church been part of so much injustice is a very legitimate question. Because those who profess Christianity are right on pace with everyone else when it comes to committing injustice in this world. So how about Christians being hypocrites? Of course, Christians' individual interactions with people typically aren't recorded in history, so it's not like we can just go through a list of hypocrisy. But I think if we ask ourselves whether we are Christian or not, 
Have we ever witnessed a Christian being hypocritical? I think the answer would be yes. I think we can think of maybe plenty of examples, if we are Christians ourselves, of just how we've been hypocrites. And if you can't, that might be something you want to talk to some close brothers and sisters about because you probably are blind to your hypocrisy. But I'll just give one real-life example, simple example, but one I think is very common. A friend of mine, a good friend of mine in chiropractic college, would not accept Christianity. And he had a sister that did profess Christianity. And his sister would just get on him about mainly and first being very skeptical of the Bible and of Jesus, of Jesus Christ, but also just any sort of breaking of the Ten Commandments that she would see in his life. They would get into some pretty serious, heated debates about these things. And I, of course, would try to stay out of that conflict as much as I could. But when I did ask him about it, he told me that it wasn't any scientific evidence or philosophical understanding that he had against Christianity, both of which he would use in these debates that they would get in. But it wasn't either of those things that kept him in rejection. What he said was what kept him skeptical was his sister who claimed to be a Christian and this great person, but then she would go sleep with her boyfriend all the time. And he knew the Bible well enough to know that it speaks of sexual immorality as being sinful. So he just couldn't understand that. He would ask, why would he want to be part of a religion with people who claim that there are these rules to follow that must be followed, but they don't care to follow these rules themselves? That's a great question. And obviously his sister is not alone in this. And even if we just focused on that particular form of hypocrisy, she wouldn't be alone. Christians can be and very often are hypocrites. So I think it's pretty clear that the first thing that needs to be addressed in posing a response to why has the church been responsible for so much injustice and why are Christians hypocritical is not trying to excuse away or justify away our involvement in these things, but it's admitting to and repenting for all the things that we have done. Pastor Timothy Keller says there is no way to answer this objection in a triumphalistic manner. This means that there's no way of proving that injustices haven't been done by Christians or that we're not hypocrites as Christians to squash this objection. We don't have that option. We have committed injustice and we are very often hypocrites. So it's time to own these things. And our best response is again to admit what we have done, call our actions what they are, which is vile, despicable, unacceptable actions, and then repent. So I say to you, if you are a skeptic listening or in this room and you do have this objection, we are sorry. Sorry for the injustice that has been committed by Christians from the wars of the past that we were part of to the ill treatment of African Americans or immigrants or the gay community or any other groups of people that have different beliefs than us, all the way down to the individual hypocrisy that you have witnessed or you have experienced. We are sorry. We ask your forgiveness. That is the first and maybe most important part of dealing with this objection, I think. And I wanted to do that first because I think it is a display of what the primary message of Christianity, which is the gospel, is supposed to do to a person. It is an example of how our message that Jesus Christ 
came down from heaven all the way to earth and lived a perfect sinless life and then died a brutal death to pay for our sins and redeem his people. How that message changes us as people in every area of our life. As Christians, we should be declaring with our mouth and displaying with our actions the good news that the gospel is. If we have been changed by God and by grace through faith, have been given absolute acceptance from God because of Jesus' work, which is true in the gospel, then we don't have to run from admitting that we have done wrong or continue to do wrong. We don't have to justify our evil. We, don't, we, don't, we can have humility to say, yes, I did hurt you. I am sinful. Or yes, we have Christians have hurt people and we continue to hurt people. We are sinful, broken people. May we please have your forgiveness. I think this is not only a great reminder for us as Christians who can't even live the way God wants us to live if we're not remembering the gospel and not remembering our identity. So we, of course, need these reminders all the time. But it's also important in addressing this objection. Discussing this objection requires us to have humility and come from a place of love. And both of these things can only be done when believing the gospel. But our questions weren't if these things are true. They were asking why these things are true. Why has this happened and continued to happen? When I read that question, this is what I hear. Since it is true that Christians commit injustice and are hypocritical, then the God they claim must not be real. Or if he is real, he definitely is not who I would want to follow and worship since he allows or even condones all that Christians do. Right? This skeptic is taking what they have witnessed in Christians' lives or the history of the church and taking that to mean that there must be something wrong with the God of Christianity or the beliefs of Christianity instead of just the people of Christianity. So I think the next thing that we would need to do that would be helpful is to walk through what the God of the Bible actually says about justice. Is he for it? Or is he just kind of indifferent? For that, I want to go through a few scriptures to show this. You don't have to open them up. I'll read them here. Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. This is saying that the God who rules, rules in justice, from justice, with justice. That's the type of king that he is, a just one. Secondly, Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require to you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? So not only does our God rule with justice, but he also requires his people to do justice. And lastly, Proverbs 21.3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord and sacrifice. Now, offering sacrifice to God was extremely important when God's people were under the law. It was also required of them. But here in in the book of Proverbs, what God is saying is that doing justice is even more important than sacrifice to him. So it seems that the God of the Bible is all about justice. And what what we didn't read which usually comes along with the verses that we did read, is his punishment of those who are not about justice. 
So what about hypocrites? What does God have to say about them? Well, what's interesting is this word hypocrite comes from the Greek word hypocrites. And it didn't have this negative meaning that we know of it to have today until the time of Jesus. Prior to this, it was just a term who would describe actors that would wear masks in the plays that would be put on during that day. So it was just an actor that would be a real person putting on a mask and being like somebody that he wasn't. So Jesus took this word and used it to describe the most religious people of his time called the Pharisees. And he would be very harsh with these people because they were giving the appearance of godly men, but in their heart, they were very proud and selfish and unloving men. They were hypocrites. Saying and showing one thing publicly, but being a completely different person on the inside, privately. Which brings us to our scripture this morning that was read, Matthew 23. So if you want to open up your Bibles to that, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some Bibles on the floor. Now, Danielle did a phenomenal job of reading all these verses, and um, I'm not going to go through all of this. I'm going to spend just a little bit of time. I would love to spend time to go through phylacteries and human and dill and all the stuff they went through today, but we're just going to hit on a few of these scriptures. But before I actually get to that scripture, let me just kind of set up what's going on here. So we're in Matthew 23. If you're familiar with the stories in the Gospels, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and the whole time he's teaching his disciples, they're on their way to Jerusalem. Well, they have gotten to Jerusalem at this point, and since he's been in Jerusalem, what he's done is he's cleansed the temple where he's seen people doing things that shouldn't be done in the temple. He called them robbers, and he made sure that they were cleansed of, of what they were doing. The temple was cleansed of that. Then they told, he told a few parables that were speaking directly to the Pharisees and telling them that because they rejected him, that the kingdom of God would be taken from them. He then responds to some challenging questions posed to him by the Pharisees again and other religious groups to which he had such good answers that they just stopped asking him questions after this point. So he's had lots of interaction with these people called the Pharisees. And now we get to chapter 23. And while speaking to his disciples and a large group of people, he calls these Pharisees hypocrites seven times. In verse 3, he says, For they preach, but do not practice. Signs of a hypocrite. In verse 4, he says, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger, similar to a Christian condemning an action of a non-believer, but then not obeying God themselves. He then goes on to lay out those seven times of how they are hypocrites, which Daniel read. We're not going to read again, but finally in verse 33, he calls them serpents, a brood of vipers, and then asks them, how are they going to escape being sentenced to hell? Maybe the worst thing you could say to a person. Jesus didn't mess around with hypocrites. He was not afraid to call them out in public. In fact, he made it a point to do that very frequently. And in his teaching, this teaching of Christ didn't stop with him. It actually continued on to the apostles, specifically the apostle Paul. In a very famous section of scripture, Galatians 2, Paul witnessed some very prominent Christians, other apostles actually, being very hypocritical. So how did he handle that situation? Well, he's seen it, and right to their face, in front of everybody else there, he rebuked them and made it very clear that 
we're out of step with how a Christian should be acting. So again, we see the God of the Bible and the teachings of Jesus and even continuing on to the early church fathers that they are not okay with injustice or hypocrisy. So the next thing that I would say then, after our repentance, is please do not reject our God or the teachings of Jesus because of the actions that you have witnessed from the people who claim to follow them. Judge Christianity by what it actually teaches, not by how its students apply those teachings, especially if you are about injustice and speaking out against hypocrisy. Because if that's the case with our God, you'd be in good company. Which brings me to the last part of this objection that we will discuss today. And that's addressing the people who are committing these injustices and are being hypocritical. Because why is this happening? My hope, after what we've already went through, is that you'd be saying by now, thank you for admitting that you have done wrong and repenting for it, apologizing for it. And I understand now that your God in the Bible isn't condoning injustice or hypocrisy, but I still don't understand why Christians are so messed up. Why have they not only as a group went against what God teaches, but also as individuals, they fail to live the way that they say people should live? Again, another great question. But I think what's somewhat behind this question is a misunderstanding of what Christians actually believe. Most people outside of Christianity, and unfortunately many people inside of Christianity, believe that what our faith is all about is being ethical and moral, that that's the center, being a good person who doesn't cuss or lie or steal or watch R-rated movies. Like Justin always says, many people think that the Christians are the guys in the old Western films with the white hats on. They're the good guys, and everybody else with the black hats on are the bad guys. This is what many people believe. I can remember a few years ago at one of my son Tatum's baseball tournaments, There were a couple teams in that tournament with religious affiliations. Their hats and uniforms even had crosses on them. Well, at this tournament of maybe the six or the eight teams that were there, these two teams, with fans totally made up of religious people, were the only two teams that had parents who had incidents with umpires that led them to being thrown out of the ballpark. Many of the other parents were obviously very embarrassed by this. And I can remember one of the moms leaning over to Emily and I and saying, so much for the crosses on our shirts. What is she meaning here? She means that Christians aren't supposed to do things like that. We are not those type of people. We're better than those type of people. Now, while there may be some truth to that, what she's saying, this is not the primary teaching of Christianity. Christianity is not primarily about obeying the rules and being a great person. And it's definitely not required for one to be fit for Christianity. All that is required to be fit for Christianity is for one to admit that they can't obey the rules perfectly and they can't be that perfect person. Once this is understood and admitted, then it's not just asking for more time or different circumstances or another opportunity to just live this moral life but it's turning to Jesus in our helpless and hopeless state so that he can forgive you and give you his record of perfect sinlessness. 
This is what a Christian who is engaging a non-Christian with the gospel is wanting them to come into. We are not asking non-Christians to come be like us, who have it all figured out and live this perfect sinless life. We are saying, come join us, who are broken, sinful, jacked up people, who God is working on to mold and to shape in order to make us more like, look more like his son, Jesus. You want to get rid of injustice and hypocrisy? Get everyone to look more like Jesus. He's the only one in history that's never been part, any part of any injustice. He's never been part of any hypocrisy, and he's the most loving person that has ever lived. That would be the best plan. Get everybody to look like Jesus. That's what we believe. Christians are messed up people who God is taking through this process to look more like Jesus. So what this woman at this baseball game really should have said is not so much for the cross on our shirts, but thank God for the cross on our shirts. The incident that we just witnessed that day was the reason that the cross had to happen. That cross should be a reminder of how sinful people like us can be reconciled to a holy God that can't be in the presence of sin at all. Without that cross, there's no hope for humanity. There's no hope for getting rid of injustice and getting rid of hypocrisy. The work that was done on that cross and the person that did the work on that cross is the center of Christianity. Not morality, not following rules, not avoiding injustice, not avoiding hypocrisy. It's God. He's the center. He's what Christianity is all about. So having said all that, to make sure we actually answer the question, let me give you three reasons why one could see Christians being so hypocritical and why the church could be part of such evil things throughout history. Number one. The people who are unjust to you, not living the way that they should and telling everyone else to live a certain way, they might not be Christians themselves. Churches are full of people who claim Christianity, but unfortunately, they have never really received or been changed by that message that we just went through. Jesus tells us that many people will get to judgment day and he will tell them he never knew them at all. Scary stuff. But if one is consistently in sin and not living the way the Bible would want them to live, and he has no signs of repentance of that way of living, we can most likely assume that that person is not really a Christian. So clearly, if one is not even part of our faith, the faith itself can't be judged by their actions. Number two, these people who make this objection true might just be immature in the faith. The analogy of human growth is used many times in Scripture. Paul talks a lot about feeding immature Christians with milk instead of solid food. If one is immature, although they have been forgiven and justified by the work of Christ, and they have been given the Holy Spirit to help them fight sin and be loving and serve others and fight for justice even, they will still need to grow up in the faith before changes in the morality and the desire to love and serve people actually improve. To look at immature Christians' actions and compare them to maybe non-mature non-Christians or mature people of other religions would be unfair to, believe, to base our, the entire belief system on that. You may know nothing about this immature Christian's past. They could be night and day more moral and more loving than they ever were prior to becoming a Christian. And if this is true, 
then it wouldn't be moving away from Christianity that would help them, but getting deeper into it and being changed by it more and more, that would be what they needed. Number three, if they are truly Christians and have had time to mature in the faith, maybe even there are leaders in the church like a deacon or an elder, there's still nothing in our theology and what we believe that says that even these people can't commit sin. I will say that it's more than likely these people, the mature Christians, who have done many of the most loving acts that have ever been done throughout history, ending the African slave trade, led by a Christian. The civil rights movement, led by a Christian. Women's rights movement, led by Christians. Abolishing slavery in America, led by Christians. And we can continue to go on and on. But even these people who have been part of so many phenomenal acts of love and are fighters against injustice and any other type of evil are still capable of not living up to the standard that God has laid out for us. Even the super apostle Paul, we've already mentioned, the one who stood up to the other apostles when they were in sin, the one that wrote most of our New Testament in the Bible, said this in one of his letters, Romans 7. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Friends, our theology teaches us that human beings were created in the image of God, and when created, they were perfectly capable of not sinning. But because of temptation of Satan, our first parents fell into sin. And ever since, all human beings have been born in such a way that we are incapable of living sin-free lives. And not only that, but sin is actually our modus operandi. To the point that God even calls us his enemies. This is why there has been so much, done, so much injustice done by people outside the Christian faith, people of other religions, or the secular groups. Sin is powerful, and it's deep within our bones. And here's what else our theology teaches, that the only way of getting out of that state is by being born again. God has to actually reach inside of a person and pull out his sinful hard heart and replace it with a soft heart. And this new heart that we receive is not immune to committing sin, but it's actually now we have the option of choosing the ways of God instead of the ways of men. And once this happens, once we've been given this new heart for the rest of our lives or until Jesus returns, they will continue to be changed by God and made more like Jesus. But, and this is the but that answers the questions of why can even mature Christians continue to sin? Christians will never be perfectly like Jesus and sin-free until they leave here and go to heaven or until Jesus sets up his new kingdom here on earth, which he promises to do. Here's another amazingly beautiful truth about our faith. It means that there is an expiration date to injustice and to hypocrisy. Because of Jesus' death and then his resurrection, according to what we believe, Christ is coming back. And when he does, everything will be made new, as we sang about this morning. 
Everything wrong will become right. Every pain will be eliminated. Every tear will be wiped away. And there will be nothing but goodness and joy and love and all-out worship of the one who made it all true. I will close with this. This objection wants to judge the beliefs of Christianity and deeper than that, the God of Christianity based on the actions of a group of people who are trying to believe and then act on those beliefs. A group of people that according to the Bible aren't even capable of perfectly believing those beliefs or taking the correct actions on those beliefs all the time. Which means many times we as Christians aren't the best representatives of our beliefs or of our God. But here's what we are thankful for. And here's what I hope you hear and are affected by this morning. Despite all of our failures to live according to our beliefs, and despite our lack of love for other people, Christ doesn't look at that and say, Father, reject these idiots and just go start over. That's what the skeptic is trying to say, right? In a way, they're saying, I reject Christianity because Christians are these jacked up people. I wish it would just go away so that I can go and find another worldview to attach to. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus says, Father, even though they are jacked up, even though they don't listen, they don't honor us, they don't love others like they should, let me go down and do whatever it takes to bring them to glory. And that's what he did. Over 2,000 years ago, he came down and lived this life that every Christian should live and every non-Christian wants a Christian to live, to live. And then he died the death that every Christian should have died. And now he sits up in heaven and at the right hand of his father and continually pleads for the people, the very people who chose to commit the greatest injustice in the history of the world, which was putting Jesus to death without any guilt on his part whatsoever. That's the guy that we worship. There's no one like him. There's no one that can love like him either. Not the Christian or the non-Christian. We can't love like him, but we can be loved by him. And I hope that you can take in and receive that love this morning. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we have repented to men this morning for injustice that we have played a part in, we now turn our hearts to you and confess this evil and also ask your forgiveness. We have committed injustices. We have been hypocrites. I have committed injustice. I have been a hypocrite. What we're thankful for is that you chose the form of of justice that you actually did. You would be perfectly just to wipe us all out because of our sin, but that's not what you chose to do. You chose to wipe out your perfect, sinless son and show us what love actually looks like, which is laying down your life for another. So we ask that you would make us those type of people. We ask that you would show the world through us how awesome of a God you are. Because it's not us. They can't look at our lives and see what the God is actually like. They can't look at our lives and see if the beliefs are actually true. We are sinful, broken people 
who just like a non-Christian are in need of a Savior. And we're thankful that you actually provided that Savior. So we give you all glory, honor, praise this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.